So, earlier this month, Danielle and I visited her family up north so that we could help her grandma move. Um, while we were packing the truck, Danielle's aunt paid me a compliment. And especially when I'm busy or, you know, rushing around or whatever, I don't do compliments well. So I deflect compliments, I downplay them. That way I don't have to deal with any sort of positive feelings that get in the way of, like, work. It's just part of Josh. I have a kind of a list in my head about what sort of deflections I like to use. And this one is one of my favorites. When Danielle's aunt told me that uh, I'd done something particularly clever, I responded by saying, well... I didn't get kicked out of college for nothing. Raise your hand if you knew that I got kicked out of college. Excellent. I'm going to talk about that today. But first, I'm going to pray. Uh, God, thank you for showing up today. God, um, thanks for giving me a message to share to these guys. Um, I am super nervous, but uh, I've got to invite you to, to speak through me. God, to pray that I get out of your way. And, Lord, I pray that um, this message from the life of Joseph uh, really hits home. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So I grew up in a small town where school was never very hard for me, except for penmanship, the worst of all subjects. Penmanship's terrible. They shouldn't (laughs) teach it. I got a B in penmanship in fifth grade. It was my first B and it was just, yeah, I gave up. But since school was never very hard, when I went to university, I found out that I didn't know crap about studying. Um, not only did I stink at studying, I found out that no one cared if I went to class. And that, plus the fact that I actually had like real new friends, um, and that I could watch something like two hours of The Simpsons every day, <laughs> that all got me into a really bad place. For three years, I repeated this cycle. Get myself into academic probation in the fall, do just enough work to get myself out in the spring, and repeat. I was going pretty well um, until junior year. Spring semester junior year um, saw an end to that cycle whenever I failed a class in my major. I so wish I would have taken it credit, no credit. Getting kicked out of school was really humiliating. When I went to college, I was so full of myself. I wasn't going to move back to my hometown. I, there's just no opportunity there. I was going to strike it out on my own, probably move to Seattle or San Francisco. Um, but when I first failed, I just felt so low, and I wondered if I could cut it in the real world. I had to deal with the fact that I'd been living in denial about my academic problems. And then I had to deal with the disappointment that I put my parents through. Not to mention how much I may have screwed up my future. My future. I went to U of I hoping to leave Mark Zuckerberg. But instead, I left feeling like a lazy moron. You can imagine what sort of self-talk that resulted in. I beat myself up constantly in my mind. I ate and drank away a lot of sadness. I gained like at least 30 pounds in the first six months. While I was feeling sorry for myself, I did go to community college for about a year, and I kept working. After a year of being out 
I got readmitted to U of I. And I found that I was a much better student. I knew how to study, I could apply myself, I could work. I had much better habits. I even went to class. Um, when I came back to school after being kicked out the first time, uh, I just felt so fortunate to have a second chance. The work was hard, but I prayed constantly that God would honor my efforts with success. At the same time, I had an ulcer from taking Russian 103. If you ever get kicked out of school, make sure you do it after completing your foreign language requirement. Don't get, don't get dropped in the middle of your foreign language requirement. It makes it so much worse. I struggled with God's leading me back to school. Um, I used to read a lot of like Dragonlance fantasy novels in high school. And one of the things I prayed was this, this cover from a novel. There's a knight leading his squire through this terrible swamp. And I prayed that cover because I, it felt very real to me that Jesus was leading me through the swamp. Um, Jesus led through this muck and mire, and he kept inviting me to join him because this is the way he was going. And I could respond by getting on board with his plan. I kept praying, God, lead me somewhere else. I don't like the swamp. But he seemed pretty insistent on the direction. My new habits weren't good enough. And in the spring semester, I failed another class. Uh, I actually failed an elective that I took in order to raise my major GPA enough to graduate. And as a result, uh, University of Illinois told me that I should leave and never come back. When I think about it now, I picture Gollum from the Two Towers. <laughs> Very similar looking woman, too. Just kidding, just kidding. I don't remember what she looked like. The leave and never come back really stuck with me. That second failure was hard to take. It really even challenged my faith. Because I, I thought I had figured it all out. You know, I'd been dropped, figured out how to work. God had this great plan. I would come back, I would graduate, and then I would join the church plant team, then come to Cornerstone. Failure didn't even fit in the plan. It just, it was so convenient. I would graduate just in time to move over. It would be perfect transition. So why would God let me fail? I mean, I learned my lesson. I had grown. I had a training montage. I did everything that you're supposed to do. No one likes the training montage. Got to make a note of that. I thought God owed me. Uh, some days it felt like God screwed me out of my degree. Have you ever had a plan blow up in your face? Did you ever have a situation that was so conveniently coincidental, it was as though God himself authored it? Have you ever had something not work out? Have you ever felt owed by God? I like to think that Joseph could relate. Today we're going to look at the story of Joseph as told in Genesis 37 through 50. I'm going to paraphrase a lot because it's a lot of scripture. So Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And scripture tells us that he was Jacob's favorite, even though he was the born 11th. It's very unusual for the time. The text kind of paints him as a spoiled brat. <laughs> That's sharp. 
we read in Genesis that when he was 17, God gave this kid some really vivid dreams. Genesis uh, 37, 5-7 says, Now Joseph had a dream, and we told it to his brothers they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream I have dreamed. Behold, we are, we are binding sheaves in the field, and, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. When this bratty young man shared his dreams with his family, they decided to murder him. And then they got talked out of it in the last minute and opted for the less serious selling the kid into slavery. If you want to read about a dysfunctional family, Genesis has the best reality show that you will ever, ever, ever be exposed to. It's amazing. So the person that Joseph got sold to was an official in Egypt. And his wife tried to seduce Joseph. And so Joseph resisted that. And as a result, he was rewarded with prison. So he's, Joseph gets sent away from his family, ends up in prison, spends years there. And I bet he had tons of sleepless nights where he just missed his dad and wondered, how did life lead me here? One day, Joseph found out. A wine steward, which sounds like a pretty cool job. A wine steward was brought into the prison. He was thrown in prison where where Joseph was. And Joseph explained a dream that this guy had that consoled him. Soon the steward was free. And Joseph, as the steward was leaving, said, don't forget about me. A couple of years go by, and the person that the wine steward worked for had a mysterious dream. And this guy was like, oh, yeah, when I was in prison, this guy, Joseph, he could explain the dream to me. And Joseph soon got an audience with the pharaoh of Egypt and explained this dream of how there was going to be a great boom in crops, followed by a terrible famine. And then if the Egyptians were wise... They could plan and save and make it through. And so the Pharaoh thought, hey, that's it. That sounds like a great plan. You're now my man in charge. If you've ever volunteered for something in Cornerstone or suggested Cornerstone should do this thing and then get put in charge, this is probably where we got that idea of if you open your big mouth, congratulations, you've just earned yourself a new job. (laughs) So Joseph was put in charge of managing, saving, and distribution of this famine. And as a result, God used Joseph to save countless lives when this famine hit. Genesis 41, 56, and 57 says, So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was so severe over all the earth. Eventually, those same brothers that sold Joseph into slavery had to go to Egypt to buy food. And after some shenanigans, Joseph was reunited with his whole clan and kept them safe and fed in Egypt. Years later, Joseph's dad passes away, and we find that these same brothers, for years, have been sweating this very moment. They think Joseph will finally take his revenge. 
Genesis 50 says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, you know, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph was so affected by the position that God led him to that he didn't want revenge. This bratty teenager grew up and no longer held a grudge. Joseph instead explains that though they planned evil, God planned good. When I read that story as a kid in Sunday school, I didn't think twice about it. It was obviously the correct answer. What should Joseph say to his brothers? Well, he should say, I forgive you. Open and shut. Now that I read it as a grown man, uh, I am blown away. (laughs) Because that story seems, that situation just seems so hard. Joseph was so old into slavery when he was 17. His father got super depressed when his favorite son was dead. It was decades until Joseph got reunited with his dad. Decades. That's longer than most of you have been alive. Joseph was sold to slavery when he was 17. When he was 40, in his 40s, that's when he was reunited with his dad. That's, that's such a long time to be thinking about all of what those brothers did to him, how much they took, him away, they took away from his life. Jacob was already an old man when Joseph was born. So for most of those years, Joseph didn't even have an idea if his dad was alive. He had no hope. Can you imagine the range of emotion that that man must have felt? Especially when his brothers didn't even recognize him. Joseph turns the other cheek and offered forgiveness to his brothers. It blows my mind. The path of Joseph's life could not have been planned out by a man. We plan for awesome. We plan for awesome. No one would have planned this. No one plans to be sold into slavery. We dream of becoming important and powerful. But as dreams go, we tend to skip over how we got there. We like to just end up at the destination. But Joseph, Joseph took a totally different route. And that route gave Joseph perspective. God used Joseph's life to make him into a man capable of governing and blessing and coming through for God's purpose. One area I think that Joseph grew in was the ability to surrender. (laughs) Joseph's life had so much hardship that he could have probably very justifiably dug in his heels and resisted God's call. When I think about surrender, what picture pops in my head is of a river. My family and I go canoeing every year 
And this one time, um, I was wading in the water, and I tried to wade upstream, and it was just really hard work. The river was going the other way, and eventually I, I slipped, and the river just carried me away. Going with the flow takes you someplace. Metaphorically, I think that's sort of what Joseph did. Joseph abided the constraints of his life while continuing to fear God. He could have resisted the flow by like trying to escape his slavery. He could have escaped prison. He could have left Egypt. Um, but instead, he, he didn't. He gave in and accepted where he was. And he waited for opportunities to make the most of things. Surrender isn't really something we do in America. We plan, we execute, we conquer, and we enjoy our spoils. Barring that, we buy tons of insurance. Surrender isn't part of our game plan. When things don't go our way, it leaves us feeling adrift and confused and ashamed. I don't want you to mishear me. Surrender isn't always going with the flow. Surrender call, calls for us to look with eyes of faith and look to see where God is working. Sometimes we get to see where God's at work. Sometimes we don't. But surrender means acknowledging God as the one in the driver's seat. God is always in the driver's seat. Surrender makes you adaptable. As you make plans surrounded by wise counsel, sometimes the Lord blesses those plans with success. Sometimes the Lord blesses those plans with failure. When we let God be God, the chaos of our life loses some of its urgency. It's surrender that teaches us to loosen our grip on our plans and become like water flowing through circumstances. So how do you apply surrender to your life? I think, um, I don't think anybody had to surrender as much to God as Jesus did. So we get to look to him, and in Luke we have this great example of, demonstrate, uh, this great example of surrender. Just before he's crucified, Jesus went to pray with some of his disciples. There Jesus prays that if the Father's willing, don't crucify Jesus. In Luke 22, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This prayer is so succinct and at the same time so powerful. The Father has the final say. And Jesus teaches us to surrender to the Father's will in every circumstance, while at the same time he doesn't invalidate himself. So, so often we say, well, my, what I want doesn't matter. Let's get on board with God's plan. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, God, here's what I want. This is my heart. Don't kill me. <laughs> but what I want is to lay down my heart in front of you. And what you want, that's what I want to make, what I want. It's a lot of wants in there. 
I'm really glad that Jesus chose to pray this in front of his trusted disciples. Because it, it, his openness allows us to imitate him. So what would your life look like if you prayed like Jesus? Can you see where God's at work? What's weighing on your heart right now? Are you able to take a step of faith and trust that weight with God? Can you share what it is that you have on your heart with the Lord? But at the same time, be willing to accept what he wants instead? I hope you can. When you're not able to make that offer of will back to God, that thing that is on your heart becomes a point of contention. It'll become this little bitter root between you and the Lord. It's so easy to resent God after sharing with Him the deep longings of our heart. When I failed the second time, it really hurt but it wasn't nearly as devastating as that first failure was. While I didn't like where God was leading me, and I thought he owed me a degree, I decided to follow him. As I followed him, I prayed like Jesus prayed in the garden. I shared my heart with the Lord, and I tried really hard to hold on and believe, not my will but yours be done. We get a choice to follow. To, we have the choice to not follow Jesus through our swamps. But when we choose to surrender to His lead, we get such a great intimacy. God taught me that failing isn't in, isn't the end of the world. It's through my failure that I realized that I actually cared about what my parents thought. Before I just wanted to be done with my hometown and all the people and just embrace like the black sheepness. But failing re- revealed a part of my heart that I didn't even know what I had. I learned how to work hard for something. I learned that my actions had consequences. These were all really important things that I needed to learn. And we, we sometimes talk about Cornerstone being a sending church. But I wonder what it would look like if Cornerstone was a surrendering church. As I said before, when God asks us to surrender, we have a choice. We can choose whether or not we trust him with the thing that we hold dear. God asks us to surrender everything to him. Our lives, our money, our time, our relationships, the list goes on and on. Trusting Jesus with our deep hearts is risky. But doing so gives us a taste of the life that God made us for, which sets us free to really enjoy those things. God wants us to live surrendering lives so we may become like Jesus and know intimacy, maturity, and full life. We can't follow Jesus unless we're willing to risk our hearts. We must risk those things 
being taken away for our benefit. We must risk losing what we cherish so that we may gain something better. We must risk losing or getting hurt. We must risk loss. We risk everything so that we may know life abundantly. John 10.10 says, I came so they may have life and have it abundantly. Surrender has been a key value in Cornerstone for a long, long time. Not because we necessarily wanted it to be, but it was the only way that we can endure some of the hard things that God has led us through. We gladly surrender our wants and desires so that God can send us where he wants us. Over the years, that's meant dealing with the pain of friends moving away, of staff moving on, seeing years of seniors graduate and move away. We surrender opportunity, family, possessions, and more, all for the hope that God's direction is good. And it is very, very good. Over the years, God has used Cornerstone, and he has blessed so many communities through the people that, through you guys. God uses Cornerstone to equip teachers with great hearts to bless tons of kids. God sends moms and dads through Cornerstone. He sends baristas and bankers and psychologists and photographers and missionaries from this church. God's doing some amazing things. All of the good things that God is doing through Cornerstone has required us to surrender. So go and ask him, God, where in my heart are you asking me to surrender? Be bold and courageous and trust God to be good. Will you please stand with me? Lord God, we, um, I don't know what we want, but God, what I want is that people can, can take that prayer seriously. Lord, I pray that, uh, I pray they take it to heart and are willing to ask you what you're asking of them. God, get people in touch with their deep hearts so that they can willingly offer that back to you. And Lord, I pray that you come through with intimacy. In your son's name we pray.